0: Shattered lives, an informed, conversational, cutting edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna R. Gore, aka Lady Justice, your host, with my co host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show into our library of weekly archived shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And uh, yes, indeed, everyone, um, that is our mission. And welcome to another Saturday edition to Shattered Lives. And want to let you know that we have a very um, special guest today. In fact, this show has been a, um, more than a year in the making, so I'm very excited to let you know that we have so a, a mover and a shaker in the, in the world of um, missing persons research, missing persons uh, authorship, uh, journalism, and uh, co- consultation, Sylvia Petum. Um But before I int- introduce her formally, let me say good morning on Memorial Day weekend to Delilah in Myrtle Beach. How's everything, Delilah?
1: It's great, thank you, Donna. And uh, I'm I'm very very excited as well to to finally get to speak with Sylvia Peat. I have followed her work and her research for a long long time, and um, I think listeners will be coming away with a totally new outlook on what goes on behind the scenes of missing and unidentified persons in our country.
0: Absolutely, and I think you know her credentials are are. Are, are stellar, and I'm hopefully if we can work things out, maybe looking forward to having a presentation by her, um, maybe at the Q Center. We'll we'll, we'll see. But um, without further ado, let me just say a couple words with regard to her background. She's a Colorado-based self-employed researcher, a writer, an author with a passion for cold cases, uh, Unidentified Remains, and Long-Term Missing Persons. And that is the book that we will be focusing on today because I believe she has at least a dozen. And she's contributed to identification of Boulder Jane Doe, um, is an associate member of the Vidoc Society, um, uh, and is one of the organization's Medal of Honor uh, recipients. She she also uh, consults Uh, with the Boulder Police Department, is an uh, instructor for NamUs, and the list just goes on and on. (laughs) So um, we're very, very happy. Uh, So without further ado, Sylvia, let me welcome you perhaps to your first radio podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for being part of the Shattered Lives
2: family. Well, thank you. That was was quite an introduction. I I hope I can live (laughs) up to it. (laughs) Well, I think you can. You're probably one of those
0: people that are, you know, like to stay in the background, but unfortunately, you know, we we have to be on the airwaves to get this information out. So, thank you, thank you, on behalf of missing persons, um, and homicide survivors, for all the work that you've done. It's it's just, well, thank I'm, thank I'm you. I'm
2: I'm glad I'm glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this.
0: Well, well, great. Um, you
2: know, there's there's so
0: much to say. And you know, in reading your book, um, you know, it seems to me that you are such a meticulous researcher and so very thorough. And you know, getting at the topic from so many different angles, I just want to encourage everyone to go to your website as well as purchase this book because. In my opinion, up until now, I don't know if Delilah, you share this, there is no one good go-to resource with missing persons. I allude to that in in my um, blog that I put up today. And I think this may be the start of it. So, Sylvia, um, can can you give us um, an, an overview of the process of how you created this book, and I know it was you so long.
2: Do you want the long version or the short version? Well, Um,
0: we only have an hour, let's put it that way. I know, I know.
2: Okay, well, (laughs) I I, uh, I, uh, got involved with the identity of a Boulder Jane Doe murder victim. And previous to that, I had spent my entire adult career writing about uh, Boulder history, And then I stumbled upon this gravestone, and that was in 1996, and that's a whole long story in itself. But ever since then, my focus has changed from writing about regional history to writing about cold cases and researching cold cases and missing persons. And that, that whole, that was a huge learning experience for me to go through that just as a an average citizen getting involved in a case like that, learning about law enforcement, and I did learn a lot. And I ended up um, writing the book uh, Cold Case Research, which was actually turned into sort of a textbook for law enforcement. And in that process, I realized that there, like you said, there really was nothing for families. So I, this latest book, The Long Term Missing, is to to fill that gap. And I, I. Uh, Agree with you. I don't think there there has been anything up till now that really is you know aimed at families themselves. Right.
0: Well, you are an innovator then in in terms of this, and like you say, you got involved as and I think you term it in one of your chapters a civilian. Uh, well, there's civilian searchers. So I am a civilian advocate because you know baptism by fire being a homicide survivor um, so sometimes that creates all the more passion than just choosing to do this because oh it's interesting or you know it's what I do I write but you that so it sounds like that that case of uh, Jane, Jane, Jane Doe really um, sparked your passion is that right?
2: Absolutely I mean I, I literally stumbled into it and very naively, just went to my local sheriff and said, "Oh, why don't you just exhume the, these remains and I'll help you figure out who she is." And <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I mean, it took many years. And now, this uh, victim, previously unknown for fifty years, has her name on her grave, and it's very, very satisfying. Absolutely,
0: and I believe that's one of the um, one of the cases that you you docu- document in your book, but. Um, With regard to, um, I was just curious how you define the the long term missing in terms of your experience because that is part of your title.
2: Well, I I I don't think there is any set definition. Um, I haven't actually given a set definition. I think various jurisdictions and various states and organizations, law enforcement, whatever, they have their own definition of what a long-term missing person is it can be anywhere from a month to three years to longer but it's it's whenever the leads give out and no one quite knows what to do next (laughs) if, if that's a a well, vague
0: way I, of putting it. I I think that's a definition from the heart or maybe after the first 24 hours and you know families are left like you know there's still that old myth about oh we have to wait you know we no, have to wait That's not seven, true. People need,
2: that's to not know true. They need to report a missing person immediately.
0: Yeah, uh, for sure. Um yeah. why do um can you tell me I know one of the things that we need we talked about in terms of focusing. Um, your the, the the cover of your book is is quite interesting, and then um, the Van Gogh. And then you you have um, a particular song that really struck a chord with you called the vacant chair. Would you like to to kind of introduce that aspect?
2: Well, I was actually the publisher gave me permission to choose a cover design, and so I kind of stumbled around on the internet and thought about different ideas and i bumped into this uh painting it's by van gogh and it's in the a museum in amsterdam it was painted in 1888 and it just shows a a chair with a candle and a book on it and it just struck me that that chair is like a it, it signifies that someone is missing but the the book and the candle signifies some hope that Possibly for their return, and then I started exploring more about that symbolism of the vacant chair, and I found that it was actually written as a poem shortly after World or after a Civil War, and turned into a song called "The Vacant Chair." And there's many renditions of it on the internet and on YouTube, and I I just I, I keep a little icon of it on my desktop on my computer, and I just whenever I need a lift, I play it. It it just it inspires hope to me.
0: Well, it it's a very striking cover. Um yeah, it's very it's oh, very moving. You. And and you know, when you look at it in first glance it almost looks like a mosaic but then when you really focus your eyes but I was just you know, you can see the chair and the candle. Um, so, you know, I encourage people, we put it up a number of times, to take a look at it and definitely, um Purchase it. Uh, you know the. I know that you have a uh, a subtitle to hope, hope and help for families. And um, there's uh, what what would you like to tell us with with regard to to hope and help because those are the watchwords for all of these families.
2: Well, uh, again, the the book is focused toward toward families. But as far as hope is concerned, I think we have a better chance today. Uh, than we've ever had in solving some of these old cases because because of two things. One is the changes in technology, which is, includes DNA and fingerprints and all those things we're all familiar with, and the other is changes in, in relationships. Sometimes there's a, a sibling or ex-spouse or someone who comes forward with some information and um, you know helps in the solving of a crime they didn't want to come forward maybe 20 or 30 years ago but they will now so be, because of those two things i think we have a lot more hope today in um bringing some of these long term missing persons home or at least finding them and uh the other uh it, the help is is sort of signifies that which is what i'm pushing for which is for families to be proactive and i'm urging them all to become their missing persons advocate i'm i'm urging them to get out and and do research and initiate uh communication with law enforcement and make sure their dna's been entered into the NamUs system and things like that they, they there's a lot of things that families really can do so that that's that's the meaning between, behind the hope and help
0: mm. well I'm going to play devil's advocate here. How do, how do you suggest? <laughs> I love to do that. How do you suggest that family members do that when they're so rocked by by their grief and you know? But but these things are so important to be able to use these tools. And we we know many examples of families that are kind of stuck in their grief. And so how do you recommend they do
2: that? I think they just have to kind of take one step at a time, and I can certainly relate to the fact that 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 people are kind of frozen. Um, I've had that experience in my own life, not with this type of situation, but with something else. And, um, you know, there, there are sometimes years that go by that you just really can't do anything. But when you feel that you can, then you can start with – With something, I mean, and and for instance, something could be as simple as contacting the police department who took the missing person's report and make sure they have your current contact information. I mean, that is a very simple thing to do, but it's very important because sometimes the police agency is trying to get a hold of the family and they've moved and they've never given that current information. So I mean, there's some little, little tiny things that that can be very important and uh i think as people get started in that process slowly they can start doing more and more and if they can for instance go to a missing persons day event or a support group um i think maybe the dam will break and they can can uh participate more fully
0: yeah and don't you think especially in those acute phases um Enlisting help from maybe other family members that are not maybe so entrenched, or a trusted friend, or neighbor, or somebody who can you know maybe maybe assist you in those little things. And then as you know, as they build up their strength and their confidence to be able to get out of their grief, you know, there, there's always power in numbers, isn't there?
2: Absolutely. And and I uh, have some very good friends whose daughter went missing. Many years ago, and now they are—they are. They are um, even though their own daughter's remains have not been found, they are helping other people. They are victim advocates for others, and um, they're such an inspiration to other family family members.
0: Yeah, I, I think that happens so much. Delilah, in your experience with you know with working with the Q Center and I and and all of these—is isn't that almost? To me, it almost becomes the norm, where you know if you you get so involved in your own case and then to be able to pay it forward, I see so many family examples of
1: that.
2: Right. I mean, if you can help others, it helps yourself as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. And and as you know, Donna, Q Center is made up of so many advocates who who are family members with active missing person cases and we see so many of them are on search teams or work as advocates with other families and it really comes to a a wonderful head during our National Missing Persons Conference each year when all of these families can gather together in a safe place where everyone is going through the same situation and they feel a lot of comfort that way and i've seen it time and time again where the the way that they reach out is much more meaningful to another family than it would be for someone in say my situation i don't have a missing loved one you you can't relate to that experience as well so the families are very important to all of us in in that respect yeah I I totally
0: agree there is that instant bond but um and uh, Sylvia as a as a researcher um you know and historian whatever um how did you begin with your process in doing this book how did you build that trust so that or even with law enforcement or the other other people and I know you had a lot of email communication with people, and and to your credit, you gave credit to every single person, every single picture. I mean, it's in there. It's not about you. It's about all of these resources, which is which is so great. But how did you, you know, as an outside person, as you know, Delilah was alluding to. How did you build that trust to get all that information and to be able to compile it? Was there a particular way no well, it
2: it goes it it probably goes all the way back to the beginning of the the jane doe uh, case, which was like i said in i got interested in that in the late eight or nineteen nineties <laughs> um We really started the case in two thousand and three but um it it's a very for, for a, a civilian to, to deal with law enforcement, I found it's a very fine line. Um, you have to prove yourself, and and you have to be persistent, but not a pest. I <laughs> um, <laughs> don't know how else to explain it. But it, yep. it took many years for me to um, to gain to, to, to even feel like I was trusted even by the law enforcement and I mean at first I felt like I was giving them information but they never gave me information and, and I thought you know is this the way it's supposed to be and then I realized as I learned more about the process yes that's that's the way they operate they they keep things close to the chest and as an outside researcher I can give them stuff but I can't expect to get much back But I did develop a very good relationship, um, particularly with one person on that case in law enforcement. Um, Another person, not so much. Um, I'm I'm now working at the Boulder Police Department. I work on long-term missing cases in the uh, detective section, and um, there really isn't anyone else doing what I'm doing. It's very unusual. It's not like they let everybody do this, but. I had to sign confidentiality agreements, and I had to go through a vetting and I had to do have background checks and I had to be interviewed by the chief and the deputy chief and the you know all all different people and um even after all that, they kind of said, Well, time will tell, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think i'm I'm now trusted but it it's not a quick thing and a um, lot of people say, "Well, how how can I go and work for my police department?" And my my answer is, you have to ask, and you have to do it kind of gently. And if they won't take you, they won't take you. I mean, you you have to um, realize that it's it, it it is a fine line. I don't really know how else to explain it. And but you sort of have to prove what you have
0: to offer along the way, right? And then they'll begin to to trust you and respect you. It, it takes years to build those relationships. It takes years, like, yeah, absolutely. Right?
2: It takes years.
0: Yeah. Uh, just as an aside, did you have any involvement with, with the Jean Bonnet Ramsey case being involved? Uh, I,
2: I'm not allowed to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> Because that's,
0: that's where fine. I, I'm working. You, I'm working in the, the not, police department. What is it? Okay. Uh, we will go on from there. I was just wondering if you could say yes or no. But in in terms of um, uh, this may be obvious to some of our listeners, but maybe not so obvious, I think the whole the whole reason maybe for you writing this book is to answer this question, Why why is finding – a uh, missing person so important?
2: Well, uh, I have my reasons. Um I and I do outline them in the book and I and I, I try not to in, in my book I try not to just tell people things. I wanna show them and I want to show them by example. So I have specific examples and a lot of these cases they overlap them. I mean you know, one example fits in several categories, but um, obviously, um, and and these are not in any order. They're all equally important to me. Anyway, uh, it provides resolution for families, and I always use the word resolution rather than closure, uh, because I've had families tell me that, of course, there is no closure in a, for instance, in a homicide case, um, or or in a missing persons case, or. In any of these cases, the the person is gone, and and resolution is the best we can hope for. But um, finding the missing is important for that reason. Um, It can also aid in the arrest and conviction of criminals, and possibly prevent additional crimes. Um, If you if you identify the the victim, that can lead to the killer, and get him behind bars or her, Um, and then. The one that's really close to my heart is that it, it gives dignity and justice to the victims. And uh, interestingly enough, when I started on that Boulder Jane Doe case, all I all I thought about was, at first anyway, and then I thought about these other things, but my initial thought was getting her name on the gravestone. I wanted to know who that girl was, and I wanted her to, to have that dignity of her own name on her own gravestone, and again, I'm very satisfied that we now have that. But um, you know, all of these are equally important.
0: Yes, yes, they are. Um, I wondered if there are so many examples in the in the book, and they do intertwine in the different chapters as I as I read. But could you give us a couple of illustrative um, um, examples so that you know we can kind of illuminate? what it is that you are referring to with regard to these these very important points about, you know, why it's so important? Would you like to give an example?
2: Sure, sure. Um, I think every case is, is one that, that talks about resolution for families, but um, one that I particularly liked, and it has nothing to do with, with a crime. It, it had to do with a boating accident but it was uh, an interview that I had with a, a young woman in Wyoming. Her father had died in a, a, a boating accident in 1997, and th- this was in a enormous uh, reservoir. It was more than like 90 miles long or something. It was huge. And at the time, she was 18 years old at the time, and uh, the law enforcement had told her, Herself and her brother and her mother that there was no hope of finding her father's remains and they just had to accept the fact it was a very deep lake and a very big lake and they just have to accept the fact that that he was in there somewhere and they would never have have his remains and she she felt um, this young woman gina she felt that she had lost her identity every time uh, she was introduced to someone. She was just introduced as the girl who lost her dad in a drowning. And 15 years later, she was watching a TV show, and she saw a feature on TV of uh, Jean and Sandy Ralston, who are a couple that do underwater searches for remains. And she suddenly realized that there are people out there helping, and these people are doing exactly what she needed, and she contacted them, and they uh, agreed to come and help, and actually, it was on her uh, parents' wedding anniversary that um, they found they found her father's remains in eight minutes. <laughs> I mean, it's well, holy incredible. cow! They, they did. They had this underwater sonar, and they had a little remote uh, operating vehicle that could go around on the bottom of the lake. And they went out to the area where they where the mother had pointed out that the boat had gone down and um, found him, you know, that quickly, and then the, the local search and rescue crew actually retrieved his remains. But now um, Gina tells me that she she feels like she has her identity back and um, she has something to hold on to. She and her mother had gone to a, a grief support group and were distressed that they had nothing tangible to hold on to, and these other people, you know, they could go to a grave and and mourn and grieve and, and Gina and her and her family had nothing until she got back these remains and that was because of a civilian searcher who you know, works for free like so many other people do. So um I use that as an example for resolution for families. Um
0: that's hugely and- inspiring. You know,
2: in, in what for
0: if not for the, the right technology, the water sonar, you know, eight minutes. That's, that's just amazing, Sylvia.
2: Right. After 15 years of, of grieving and, you know, and they find him in eight minutes. It's incredible.
0: Oh, I can imagine that must have been one of the best best days of their lives. And And the other thing I was thinking, you know, as a, as a family member, I mean, you 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 graduate over from being in victimhood to survivorhood, and just not to have that label of, oh, that's the family, that's the person who, who so and so died. I mean, that's that's stigmatizing. That's like, oh, right. that's that that's that person that has that disability or whatever. To be labeled in that way is right. is awful, you know.
2: Right. Yeah. And then, um, just briefly, uh, uh, the, the example that I use for giving dignity and justice to the victims, and of course, you know, they all do, but um, there was a, a, a case in, in Iowa, in Rock Rabbits, uh, rabbit I'm not pronouncing that right, Rabbits, uh, Iowa, uh, of a young woman who was uh, found and buried as a Jane Doe in 1978. Her body was just found thrown along a, a country road out in the middle of nowhere in Iowa. And um, the sheriff who, the incoming sheriff in, in um, I think it was in 2001 or so, he, he got very interested in this case, and he was upset that no one had ever tried to identify her or solve that case. I mean, they had tried, but not in any um more advanced way, and of course, this brings in the changes of technology um, they uh, did it, they they had to find her fingerprints, which were on file from before she was buried, and uh, finally got those out and and got them into a more sophisticated database with uh, more sophisticated fingerprint analysis and um, got a match, and that sheriff was so dedicated to that case, he just never ever gave up. And um, they had called this young woman our girl, and so they kept, you know, talking about trying to identify our girl. He said that on the day that she was identified, and that was in 2006 with this fingerprint match, he says it was uh, one of the happiest days of his life and they held a uh, memorial service for her. Um, she was a foster child. Her foster parents had attended, and um, her she had a daughter, and the daughter came later to visit her grave. Um, the case is still not solved, but they have, I think, two persons of interest. This had something to do with uh, an escort service and prostitution, and, he He was so uh the sheriff on the phone he was so um adamant about the fact that you know lifestyle doesn't matter uh nothing matters except dignifying this victim and getting her name on the grave and bringing the the family in this case it was a foster family um giving them the resolution and um you know he that sheriff to me is is a hero he's such an inspiration and there are lots of people in law enforcement like him.
0: Yeah, and and to just to have the um, the wherewithal and the, and the perseverance to just continue for years, and it, it truly is you get very emotionally involved and in How how can you not? Um, so you know, I commend that person and all of the people who who perpetually do that. And, and I noticed that you you really are a. You know, a, a, a big person in terms of um, being able to identify and access as many resources as possible with regard to um, families um, going on their journey. Let's talk a little bit about the, the variety of resources that that are available. That maybe well, maybe there, some people don't know. there's a lot of them,
2: and I and I apologize for ones that I didn't even include in the book. I mean, there's. There's many more that I could have and I should have. Um, but I do uh, devote a, a good section of the book to um, how families can do their own research. And, of course, some of it has to do with old cases, um, which, which is really near and dear to my heart because that's what I did with the Jane Doe case. I mean, really going back and doing the old-fashioned shoe leather kind of detective work where you're going into courthouses and finding things that aren't on the internet and not everything is on the internet Um, but you have to learn to do a combination of the old research and the new research but to to jump into the new research first uh, you know i can't say enough about namus and Mm -hmm. most people i think know about namus it's n-a-m-u-s and if you just google namus you'll you'll get to the site. It's um, run by the National Institute of Justice, and it's, a, it, it's matching databases between the um, missing persons and um, unidentified remains, and there's also an unclaimed section as well, and the public can access that, and um, a wonderful example of the public doing that is um, Beverly Davis. Her sisters found her. She went missing in I think, 1987 in um, Kansas City, Missouri. She, her body was found as a Jane Doe in Dayton, Ohio, almost 600 miles away. The very next day on I-70, she went missing at a truck stop on I-70, and she was found on an exit ramp on I-70, but missing in, in Missouri and found in Ohio, and nobody connected the dots for 22 years. Her sister oh, went into light. this database and typed in the information and she had some very distinctive tattoos at least that time <laughs> for the for the 80s she had a, a a red rose on one breast and a unicorn on the other breast and they went into this database and accessed the coroner's uh, report and it mentioned those two tattoos and that linked the two cases together and now she has her name on the grave, and she's buried in the same cemetery as her mother. Um, You know, it's it's a bittersweet ending, but they have her back. And, um, again, NamUs is something the public can use and should use, and anyone with a long-term missing person needs to make sure that they have a missing persons report filed with a law enforcement agency and that their DNA has been given to be entered into this name um, is state based. is it an resource, easy
0: process? Is it an easy process it? to oh to, simple. Be able yeah, to get it's Just a little swab on the cheek. Right. What yeah. is
2: oh, it?
0: Well, I, I was just wondering in order to, to volunteer to do that, where 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 would a person go?
2: To their is to just, the law enforcement agency that is responsible for that case. So it's where the person went missing from
0: Okay, they and they have just the say, history. "I want
2: to give a DNA sample." If it, it, well, if if you had a family member that went missing in Kansas, for instance, and you happen to live in Florida, you don't have to travel to Kansas to do it. You can you can go to your own law enforcement agency, and they will t- they will swab the cheek your cheek, and and they will send it off to the appropriate to the lab law enforcement agency where it is. It's um. They they need to they need to get in touch with the law enforcement agency that has the missing persons report for their missing person, and if no one has ever taken that, and that turns out to be more common than than, I mean it, it's surprising. There's a lot of missing persons cases still where no one's ever filed a report, but once the report is filed, that's the agency that would should get that DNA to submit to this. Database, but like I said, if you live somewhere else, your local police department can do that and forward it on. Mm-hmm. Is there a so cost for, the- for families? Uh, uh, no go ahead, Donna That's what no. I was no. going to call. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't hear what you said, but there's no cost at all.
1: That was Just, my question as well, Sylvia. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, and another resource that you know I can't I. I can't speak highly enough, is, is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children with the acronym of NECMEC, N-C-M-E-C. Um, anyone with a child younger than 18 really needs to contact them as well. There's lots of resources that they have. Um, you could just Google them on the Internet, and it's a lot. I mean, I was amazed myself, and you know, I thought I knew about them, but when I got on and found so much more that they have. Um, and then there's civilian searchers like, uh, like these people that did the underwater search for the young woman in, in Wyoming. But then there's dog handlers, there's horseback riders, there's many, many, many people who work as civilians and they work for free. And I think it's, you know, people need to know that there are others out there doing that sort of thing. And then there's law enforcement, and there are so many people like this dedicated sheriff in, in Iowa who just work endlessly to to try to resolve some of these cases. And then I put myself in the category of just an advocate working on this Jane Doe case, but there's a woman in, in Minnesota, Deb Anderson, who worked for years and years on the Blue Earth case. It was the Blue Earth Jane Doe in um, a town called Blue Earth, Minnesota. And just last year, she was identified as Michelle Boucher. Um, her family now has resolution and has her remains. Um, and she has her name now on her grave. Um, and friends and and family members and you know other family members sometimes families are estranged and they may not know that another part of the family is working on trying to find the missing person so there's there's so many resources and so many people and i think it's it should be comforting to families to know that there's complete strangers out there who are trying to find their loved one
0: yeah, and I, you know, I think collaboration and cooperation is so important among all of these entities, and you know, um, and we we don't ever want to have people, you know, compete compete against each other. But I just think that with all, especially with nonprofits and all volunteer type of entities, that 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 is so important because not uh, not only with cooperating with each with law enforcement. And a nonprofit entity, if they can build those relationships, it's so it works so much better than operating as a silo. Don't you agree?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: It it gets you know it, it's so it's so much more productive. But you know, I don't know if you have advice in terms of um, people never think that when their family member goes missing that. It, it may be 20 years down the road before there's answers. And I know even families here locally in Connecticut that have had uh, cold cases. Um, what, what particular kind of advice would you give to those people versus the people who have gone missing, you know, maybe within the last few months or a couple of years? Are there different things that you would say to them?
2: Um, well... As far as the long-term missing, I think I think the, I don't know if it's advice, but I, the hope is, again, this changes in technology and changes in relationships. I think there's much more hope today that these people will be found. They should never, ever give up hope, and uh, they should be as proactive as they can. And we've discussed already that, you know, some some people just, can't break out of that frozen state, <laughs> or at least can't for a while. But they,
1: mm-hmm. if
2: they can just start taking little steps and and work toward it, um, they will feel much better. And um, you know, I I I just think that so many of these cases are solvable that even five years ago, that we looked at and thought, you know, how how are we ever going to find that person or how can this case ever be solved?
0: Right. Well
2: well, you probably encountered this maybe this question
0: before and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but <laughs> some of the some of the but I guess I am going to some of the um quote unquote frequent complaints that I see with in the missing person family community are two things. One is that, you know, my local law enforcement or state police or whoever it happens to be are just not cooperative with me, and we under, You and I understand that there's a reason for them not to be forthcoming. We can't get anywhere, and or there's a change in command, change in detectives over time, et cetera. And um, then then the the other the other issue would be, well. Like in my state, we're really, really strapped for money right now.
2: Okay, so let me answer. This, th- let me go to go the ahead. first one first before okay. I lose my train of thought here. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes, there is a turnover, and and that's a problem. Turnover detectives. You get one detective who is so uh, has a wonderful relationship with a family and is so dedicated, and then they retire, and then you get somebody else, and um, you know it. It loses its momentum sometimes, and I hear that complaint all the time from families my My police agency's not doing anything well it it could be that they're not. I don't know. It could also be that they are, and they their their reason that I learned anyway for not communicating with me initially is that if the case goes to trial, they have to protect the integrity of the case. So they can't say much, if it, particularly if it's a homicide, they can't reveal some details that the average person, you know, they, they want to keep that private to themselves. So um, what what I would suggest is that anyway, in, in Colorado, I, let me backtrack a minute. In Colorado, the particularly like homicide detectives are supposed to call the someone in the family once a year. I don't know if they're doing that in other states or not, but once a year is like the very minimum, I think, that you should be in touch with someone in a long, long, long term missing case, but it keeps the uh, contact information up to date, and it gives the um, detective a chance to bring the person, the family member up to date if there's been some major change or whatever, but if if a family has not heard from their detective in a year, they need to call them and they need to make an appointment with them and go in and sit down and say, um, here's a few more details or here's a little more information I'd like to give you. And um, maybe not expect anything in return, but but initiate that keeping up that communication. I think that's so important. And if the detective flat out says I don't have time to talk to you, then ask to speak with his supervisor and say, "Is there someone else I can talk to?" And you know, I I think again the 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 key is to be persistent, but not be a pest. Um, they right, have enough the work line. to do without people calling them all the time and saying, you know, I, why aren't you telling me anything? They they don't want that. But if you make a you know, a once a year or a, uh, a, a legitimate request to meet with someone if you haven't heard anything in a long time or to update them with some information from you or other family members. Or sometimes the family is reluctant, for instance, to say that their missing person was involved with a gang or, or prostitution, something like that. They're afraid that the police aren't going to give it enough attention, but they need to know those details. So if the family member can say, I have some new details that I want to share with you, most, I can't speak for everybody, but most people in law enforcement will say, come in, let's sit down, let's share information, or at least <laughs> they would listen to what the family member has to say. Right. And I they think have an building obliga- up that communication is so important. Isn't that, they have an obligation
0: to communicate with them, or, or at least at a minimum. And they need they need to take them seriously. You know, they can't just brush off whatever. It's their right. obligation. but I mean, to the, trust, the family right? member
2: the family member needs to take that initiative, rather than say, "Gee, this police, you know, they haven't done anything for me in ten years. I haven't even heard from it. Well, it right. maybe they don't right. know how to reach you. You know."
0: <laughs> right. The onus, so, there needs to be an onus on the family's part too. I mean, you think, oh, well, they, it's not a one-sided thing. It should be a, a mutual thing. And so right. with regard to the other issue that we're, the, the very big reality across the country is that, you know, police departments, state governments, federal, they're all, the resources are vastly changing, disappearing. Um, so what what's a family to do?
2: That's that's a very hard uh, question to answer. I personally right. know of some um, cold case or missing person dedicated detectives who have been sent out on the street. And, you know, it's a, I, in my opinion, it's a terrible waste of their knowledge and expertise to send someone who's spent 10 years really honing the skills of being a missing persons detective and Having them uh, take care of a burglary at a convenience store, um, not that that's not important, but there's other patrol officers that could do that. Um, so I don't have an answer to that question, except that we need to uh, keep urging our uh, legislators to fund more money toward the agencies. If, if throwing money at things doesn't always isn't always the answer either, but I think there's there's um, citizen advisory boards that we could participate in. We all need to be more active in getting the word out that this is important, that we need our police agencies to be funded. We need them to do the work they're trained to do. And I wish I had an easier answer. I, I just don't.
0: Right. There, there
2: are no real, I mean, I think you, you
0: answered it as well as you can, and I think the reality, too, is the value in finding your your local or regional, state, grassroots organization, nonprofit, because at least they will give you a lifeline. They will become a surrogate family. Um, And there are things, even small things, that you can do to try to help push a case along. And maybe those that are more experienced within those frameworks can, can advise you. So I can't, I can't um, say enough about the value of finding your survivors of homicide in your local communities. Right. And North, I, I want
2: right? to put in, a, put in a, a good word for Missing Persons Day events. They are getting more yeah. and more common in, in so many states now. And in my book, I mean, I, I wrote the bulk of my book a year ago, and I wrote about a few. Uh, Michigan was first, and then Arizona. And we came in where I live in Colorado last year with our first miss- Missing Persons Day event. But so many states, and, and sometimes it's just like Orange County in California or New York City in New York, but there, um, so many states are jumping on the bandwagon now to have these events. And everything that I hear from the families is just, they're they're so supportive of that because for the first time they can... I mean, I I had a family in... um, I went to the very first one in Arizona in 2015, and I talked with a a family of a missing man. They were from the Hopi Indian Reservation, and they had driven four hours that morning to get to the Missing Persons Day event, and they were going to drive back that night. They didn't want to take the time or cost to stay in a motel, and they came down just for this... to meet with an investigator and talk about their missing person. And they were so grateful that somebody actually sat down with them for maybe two hours and listened to their story and took their DNA for the first time and got it entered into the famous database. And, you know, I talked with the family members personally, and they just said it was the first time in six years since their loved one went missing that they actually had someone in law enforcement listen to them and they they were in an unusual situation on an Indian reservation because they had tribal police and they had FBI and nobody really knew whose jurisdiction the case was in and um, anyway I don't want to get into well all that's a, that's details, a but too, I mean right? that can be so helpful for a family and I saw it firsthand and I fully believe in people going to those events.
0: Yeah, I, that's so powerful, and that was that. I'm sure that meant the world to that family, and and that is an issue where you have multiple jurisdictions and who is in charge, and, and all of that. I think we we see that, you know, too often. And I think the the other issue that I think we were just addressing this week online too is that a lot of these. It, it, Delilah, you'll back me up on this with regard to um, organizations that help. They need to be out there. Helping with cases and not necessarily fundraising, but that that's a reality, isn't it?
2: Right, yeah. Or were you asking Delilah? Well, <laughs> e- either one of them. Well,
1: it's always an, a reality of any type of a nonprofit. It's, you know, the funding. Unfortunately, it all comes down to the dollar, to what everyone is able to do for whatever issue it is that you represent. And um, I'm just very very pleased that the issue of missing persons has become a lot more public than it was just a mere what 8 or 10 years ago I kind of became right. aware yeah. of it and um it it is becoming much more public and the public is finally um getting it because I know you can probably speak to the same thing Sylvia is that yeah. most people in the general public don't even think about it because it's not happening no, no, they, to them they, or they, they someone don't. they know. And
2: uh, when I got involved with this Boulder Jane Doe case, I I didn't know there were people all over the country interested in in doing this identification. Or I mean, I I thought this was maybe the only case there was. I mean, I just didn't know. And <laughs> How naive, I, right? It was <laughs> a, a huge learning curve for me, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the public. Uh, consciousness of, of missing persons can be related now to this NamUs uh, database. Um, and, again, that's something the public can go in and access, which is wonderful because there's so many databases that are law enforcement only, but this is one that the public can get in and and yeah. do their own searches on. And
1: um, So you're, you're absolutely
2: right. People are becoming much more aware of this now. Um, we have about mm, six
0: minutes or so left to our show just to give you a little time check, Sylvia. Um, okay. Yeah, wanted to ask you, I know that there's a section in your book uh, regarding pitfalls and legalities. Could you address that a little bit so just so that people, if they're going to be inspired after this show, which I, I believe they will be, and kind <laughs> well, of I think the, in? Well,
2: I think one of the things I put in there was, <laughs> was um, in that section was don't go negative, which again goes back to what I was saying about law enforcement. Um, Law enforcement is not going to help the family if they just call them up and start saying, why aren't you doing more for my family? Um, There has to be a communication. There has to be, if you treat the police with respect, they will treat you with respect, and the police should always treat you with respect anyway. But um, I've seen... People in law enforcement kind of roll their eyes if somebody's calling in and starts screaming at them. I mean, you can't yeah. help but feel that way. And um, another uh, pitfall that um, I have not personally had experience with, but I've been told by the police, is, is psychics. And I don't. I'm not going to say anything one way or the other. But the law enforcement people say that they can prey on vulnerable people and um, be careful in your interaction with psychics. I mean, go to the police first. Um, Just, you know, look into it and and be careful. Um, And then uh, the other thing that I had mentioned in that section was uh, legal action and and, uh, legal presumption of death. There was a, a missing person who... Um, was gone for 10 or 11 years and just suddenly returned. And and the husband had filed a presumption of death, which you can do in most states after seven years, and remarried and moved on with his life. Um, Those cases are very rare that someone just comes back like that. But um, people need to settle, particularly people with children, if the husband's the one that's missing, they... Or, or either parent, they need to settle guardianship issues, um, property issues, um, and they don't need it necessarily. Need a lawyer. They just need the documentation that work has been done to search for a person, and, and the fact that you have a missing persons case on file with the police department will will satisfy that um, primarily. So, you know, every case is different, but um, and then the other thing is. Uh, civil lawsuits, like everybody's familiar with the O.J. Simpson case, but there are such things as civil lawsuits that can be helpful in some of these, but it's a little beyond our time limit right now. (laughs) But there's so much that family members need to be aware of, and I I just hope that that this book that I have written will uh, help them be more proactive and give them hope.
0: Well, absolutely, and it, you have the open invitation that if you'd like to come back and and delve in more depth or talk about one well, of your you. other books or continuing, you know I, I would like to do that so in 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 that realm of what you just said um I, I'd like to ask what is it what is it you know if you had like a bottom line, what would you like readers? Uh, to come away with from your book and listening to this podcast, is there something in particular?
2: Well, um, in addition, I guess to what I what I just said, I I want family members to know how many people are out there looking for their missing person. So many family members are feeling so alone, and they think that the police aren't helping and nobody's helping, and this will never get solved, and my person will never be found, and there are people like Deb Anderson that I mentioned in Minnesota who mm-hmm. just worked years and years and years and pushed and pushed her local police department got an exhumation got the DNA entered in the system the match was made and now the family has resolution there are unknown people all over the country doing this right now and families i hope are <laughs> here i am too much hope here I'm, i hope the families realize They need to have this hope as well.
0: Yeah, and you can, you know, and there's and there's hope in numbers. So you need you need to find like like families uh, that are going through that to help you through. Yeah, and they need that
2: support system. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And they can start their own. I, I I urge family members start your own support if you don't have a support group. Just. You know, do a little research on your own. Find some other uh, family members who are going through a similar thing. Ask your police department who else is is also in this situation and invite them over to your living room and have coffee and dessert and just talk. It can be that simple. And that's how a lot of these support groups started, and they've just mushroomed into organizations. But they, they start in someone's living room, and I think that can be... A huge comfort to some of these families.
0: Yes, especially people that live in uh, areas where you know you don't have a lot of resources, and um, you know it starts small and it can it can it can mushroom, or yeah, even just one other
2: free. one other couple, okay. for instance, they can invite over and share their experiences. They'll so they'll come away feeling refreshed.
0: Yeah. Well, do you have any that you would like to mention, any upcoming events that you'd like to mention, and then maybe some contact information if you'd like to share it?
2: Well, uh, anybody interested in finding uh, out more about what I'm doing can go to my website. Uh, I don't need to give the events and presentations right now. It's just my name, sylviapetum.com, and it's spelled S-I-L-V-I-A. T-E-T-T-E-M, Um I try to keep that up to date. I have a Facebook and a LinkedIn and, you know, all the usual stuff. So people can right. find me. Well, <laughs> Thank you. This well, that's has been great. really enjoyable, and I'm uh, so honored that you invited me to be on your show.
0: Well, it's it's been my pleasure and an honor, and it's been over a year in the making, and, and it was well <laughs> worth it. So. I hope that we will keep in touch, Sylvia. Please do, because I think you're you're such a good person and a valuable resource to us well, thank much. So, we do want to keep in touch. And D- Delilah, do you have any parting comments before we have to sign off?
1: Well, I would just love to thank Sylvia for taking her time to come on with us today and and imparting all of the wisdom that she has um found over the years doing what she does. So there's too many well, more. It's very Sylvia. kind of you. It's very kind yeah. of you.
2: Thank you. And I I look forward to talking with you both again. Okay, and so be sure to listen and share
0: this podcast. So we're going to sign off for today's um edition. We I hope you all have a very good uh long Memorial Day weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sylvia. And thank, thank you, you, Lila. Okay, you're welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye.